Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. My name is Rob Heron. I'm the assistant pastor here, and I want to welcome you to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church, which means that we are a community of people learning how to love God and learning how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He's entered into the world to die for sins and reveal the love of the Father. And so as his people, we delight to gather in worship so we might rest in the love that God has given to us in Jesus. And as we rest in that love, we then become a people who delight to gather around tables and homes and more than anything and reading the Bible and praying together so we might remind one another of that great love that God has shown to us in Jesus. And as we rest in that love and as we remind one another of that love, we then delight to become a people who gather in service so we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors here in Urban and University, Knoxville, with the real hope that in some small way that love would spill out from our small corner to the ends of the earth. So that's who we are. We're a people learning how to love God, learning how to love one another as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. So this morning, to help us do that, we're finishing up our sermon series that we've entitled, O Night Divine, which is a phrase from the Christmas carol, O Holy Night. And what this, this shows us is that Christmas and Advent, really all of Christianity isn't so much about us. It's not about what we do, the gifts we give or receive. More than anything, it's about God, about who he is and what he has done. So that in mind, this morning we're considering the divine invitation that God extends to us as we reflect on Psalm 100. And you can see that in your bulletin printed for you or in one of the Bibles that are provided in your row. You can look there, Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness. Your speech, your word, it pierces the gloom. And so we ask that you would, by your grace, illuminate our minds and our hearts and our wills so that we would receive and see Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. So we might know you and grow in devotion to you and praise your name. This we ask in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. 
One high school summer, every Friday night around 9 p.m., I would start to hear this loud bass, this loud thrum, and voices that would start to seep through the walls of my house. And I would go to the windows, and I would crack open the blinds, and across the street at my neighbor's house, I would see lines of cars, a line of cars across the street, and, and cars packing the front yard of this home. And I would hear the loud thumping bass and voices, and I would hear wooing, and I would hear those sweet melodies of early 2000s hip-hop pouring through. The rumor was that a college student was house-sitting at the house for one of his grandparents that was away for the summer, thus party house. And as as a freshman in high school would look out across the street, I would start to wonder, what would it be like to step into that party? What would it be like to be in that party? It was really like some version of Rear Window, except it was a freshman in high school with no broken bones, an iPod with some Jimmy Eat World downloaded on it, and a head full of dreams. But I would look out and wonder, what would it be like to be in that party? But I knew I couldn't just go across the street and walk in looking like a ninth grader who looked like a seventh grader. I couldn't do that. So I knew that I had to act the master of disguise. So I grabbed the best one I could find, which was a long blonde wig that I owned. I put on the wig and I fearfully marched those steps across the yard and walked straight into the unlocked door of this house party. And I had imagined myself milling about being able to satisfy my curiosity, find out what the reality of being on the inside of this party would be like. But really, it was as though there was a sitcom record scratch. As everyone looked up, conversations faltered, woos ended halfway through the woo, and people were looking suddenly at a ninth grader wearing a Legolas from Lord of the Rings wig. (laughs) And he needed to go back home and awkwardly Backwards, moonwalked out of the room. The wig, not a great disguise, but there is likely no disguise that would have been enough to brought me truly into that party. There's no disguise good enough for ninth grade Rob that would have made me fully belonging in the reality of that party. I mean, it's really honestly pretty simple. What I needed was an invitation. That's all that mattered. I needed an invitation, and that I did not have, and rightfully so. And if I'd had the invitation, it actually wouldn't have mattered that by every visible metric, I didn't belong in that party. I needed to be invited. That's what truly matters. Not because we deserve it, but because this is the kind of host that he is. God invites us to his party. He invites us in. And though we don't deserve it, he invites us to belong to himself. The invitation brings us in. The invitation is what matters. The invitation brings us into the reality that unlike a college house party is so much bigger and grander and better than we could have possibly imagined it would be. And at this party, you don't become less of yourself. You don't get more disguised. You become more of yourself. Because at the center of the party, at the center of the reality, is a God who is so much more faithful and so much more loving than you can possibly comprehend. The invitation calls to us 
simply walk in. Simply walk in. However, I realize this is such a far cry from the way we might typically understand what the God of the Bible is offering an invitation. At best, sometimes the invitation is conveyed or understood as an invitation to a flat earther convention. It's an invitation to belong to something where you, your view of reality becomes more flat and more unreal. And at worst, the invitation of the God of the Bible may seem like that of a marriage proposal from an abusive narcissist. It's an invitation for you to become less of yourself, for your life to get smaller and smaller, more flat and reduced. To step in is a choice that would shrink you. But that's the only way, that's only the way it looks from the outside looking in. Inside the party, it's truly the reverse. This parter is so much bigger than we could hope for, and you become more of yourself than you possibly could have dreamed. And the outside of reality, of this reality, the outside of this reality of God's kingdom, his party is so much more flat and so much smaller by comparison. And so here is what Psalm 100 is telling us. God invites God invites, he invites us to his party, he invites us to himself so that we might know reality more vibrant, bigger, grander, and better, and that we might become more of ourselves. So all, what I want to see this morning, what I want to help us to see is specifically what God is inviting us toward. God is inviting us toward one, knowledge, second, service, and three, doxology. So God is inviting us to knowledge, to service, and to doxology. So first, let's look at how God invites us to knowledge. And you can look there at verse 3. The psalmist invites us, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we're talking about knowing. But what kind of knowing are we dealing with? Knowing, knowledge in the Bible, is not a thin, but it's a full, it's a thick reality. Knowing in the arena that really matters, knowing God and what he wants involves your heart and your mind and your actions and everything about you. If you really know that God is the Lord, if you really know that he made you, then that knowledge will inform and transform every bit of who you are and how you live. And so the invitation to know is not an invitation to just information, but to transformation. So with that in mind, what are we being invited to know about God? Well, he's the Lord. That's the word that we've used to translate the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the personal name God gave to his people when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So knowing God is the Lord means you know that he's the one who rescues you from distress. He brings you out of misery into freedom. And you see verse 3, it also tells us that the Lord is he who made us. Knowing that the Lord made us means we know we weren't created by a cruel overlord. We weren't created by some distant deity who made us and then got rid of his responsibility. He made us for freedom, and he made us for personal, intimate knowledge of himself. And so there's another side to the invitation. We're invited to know God and to know ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So if we know that God made us, we know that our, we are his creatures. We aren't self-created. 
We're not some kind of cosmic accident, but there's more to it than that. We're his people. We're meant for him. We're the sheep of his pasture. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He tends to us. He cares for us. He knows how he designs us, designed us. He knows how to care for us and to guide us. So the invitation is to know God and know ourselves. And if you want to know yourself, this is telling us, you need to know God. You want to know yourself, you need to know God. A while back, I went to this concert by this musician that I followed for a long time. And about midway through his career, he had a public breakup with God. And having thrown off, from his perspective, the constraints of knowing God, at some point during the concert, he took a break to talk to everyone about what he now sees as the gospel, the good news. For him, he said the gospel is not so much anymore about God or Jesus or any of that. The gospel is about how much your mind will expand, how much more you'll know, not only of the world, but of yourself, how much better you'll know yourself when you throw off the chains of focusing on knowing God. The less you focus on knowing God, the more, he's saying, here's the good news, you'll know yourself. So is he right? Well, for you to know more of yourself without God, you still have to believe that there is still some self, some you for you to know. And I think we should ask, why, why should that be the case? If there is no God, why should there be some distinct and important you for you to pay attention to? But on top of that, it can sound freeing. Okay, so now I don't have to focus on knowing God. I can just focus on finding and discovering myself. And at first that sounds good, but then when you dig into the reality of it, you have to. You have to find yourself. You have to discover yourself. And it has to be some you, some self that's worth all the trouble. Some you that is worth the self-discovery. So without knowledge of God, what we find is that the search for me is this unending quest for self-justification. But really on, on top of that, C.S. Lewis made the point that it's no good trying to be myself without God, he says, because the more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by other things. Things outside of us, like my friends and my upbringing and my culture. And what he's saying is that when I throw off seeking knowledge of God, I feel like I'm just so free to discover who I really am. But all that happens is I become more dominated, more controlled by things outside of me, other forces that aren't God, that aren't my shepherd, that didn't make me. And so I only know less of myself. I become less of myself. But Psalm 100, it invites us to true knowledge of ourselves and so to be truly transformed, to become ourselves. How? By knowing the God who made you, who created, invented the self that you're after, who knows how to guide us, who knows the exact detailed shape of the person that he made you to be. And so his invitation is the most gracious invitation. He invites you to focus on knowing him, to know him. And as you seek to know him, he not only shows you who you are, but he graciously makes you who you are as he cares for you and as he guides for you. Knowledge of, of yourself isn't some feat for the good at life. It's not some accomplishment. Instead, it's a gracious gift. And so what's the invitation this morning? It's not to stop taking personality tests. That's not what we're saying here. 
Instead, the question is, what is your chief aim? Are you seeking to discover some self apart from God? Are you seeking to understand yourself as though it's some accomplishment, something that you can do on your own? No matter how much self-awareness you can get from that sort of search, it in the end will actually just be flat. It'll be reduced. Why? Because you will lack knowledge of the one who invented the self that you're after, who cares for you, knows how to guide you to yourself. But here's the good news. You don't have to settle for little. God freely offers you himself. He offers the invitation that you would step into his party and you would focus your seeking upon him. And as you seek him, first and foremost, like any good party, you take the focus off of yourself and you can simply enjoy. And in doing that, you truly become yourself. That's the invitation. You know God and know yourself. God invites. God invites. He invites us to knowledge. But second, let's look at God inviting us to service. He invites us to service. God invites us to serve him and his purpose. So let's look there at verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. We're called to devote ourselves, the entirety of ourselves, to him. And the word serve is the same one used in Genesis where God calls, gives this beautiful commission to Adam and Eve to cultivate the earth, to cultivate the world so it would open in, in beauty and fruitfulness, to work and keep it. And it's also the same word used by Pharaoh when he demands that the Israelites go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So it's a word that describes labor, the work of servants or slaves. But the invitation is to serve the Lord with gladness. Another English word that captures the Hebrew gladness is mirth, which I love. I love that word. In other words, serve the Lord, not Pharaoh, with festivity. Serve the Lord with a party spirit. This is inviting us to total devotion to God with a party spirit. But how does the invitation make any sense? It would maybe make more sense to us if it said, serve the Lord, get that over with, and then you get the party. That might make more sense. Instead, it says, come to the party and you'll serve. It's worth asking, is this some kind of manipulative logic that the Bible is using where it says, yeah, you get to come to the party, but then it's a bait and switch and really you just end up giving everything away in service of some greedy God who's not going to give anything in return to give up all your power? Richie is a fan favorite in the show, The Bear. He has been working at the Chicago restaurant Original Beef seemingly since he was a little child, seemingly since he was born. It's hard to imagine him doing anything besides that. He is gruff. He's rough around the edges. He's prone to bursts of rage, like every character in the show, if you've watched it. And while he says that he loves this restaurant, he loves Original Beef, he spends all his time pushing back against every attempt to treat his work seriously as the restaurant rebrands to become a fine dining spot. Instead, he just seeks to maintain power, to, to maintain control rather than, than helping and serve. He'd rather maintain power in a poorly run establishment. But all that starts to change when he's sent away to train at this three Michelin star restaurant where he has to spend 
almost all of his time meticulously cleaning forks. And when he returns to now The Bear, this new restaurant, the formerly original beef, his entire orientation to his labor, to his service has changed. And he treats every detail with this new gravity and this new joy. And his friends that know him, they look at him with their jaws hanging open as they look at his new look where he declares, I wear suits now. He wears suits to clean forks. What changed? Not the content of what he does, not the content of his work or his labor. What changed is his grasp of what his work means. He understands his mission now is for every night, make someone's day. That's the big mission. And so he is willing and wants to wear a suit to clean forks. God invites us to serve him with gladness because his service is gladness. Because it's that big of a purpose, that big of a mission. It's not because we get to maintain power, but it's because his kingdom is so much bigger, so much grander, and so much better than what power can possibly give us. His goal is for all creation to celebrate his beauty and his goodness. And so he makes cleaning forks in your home, if done in service to him, a suit-wearing worthy activity. No Michelin star required. But unless you serve that great of a purpose, then the value of your labor depends on some kind of power. That what you do needs to involve wielding influence, or it needs to make your life immediately better, or it needs to make some kind of impact on society in a way that you and society view as important. That's what makes your labor valuable. And so this, really the insidiousness of that kind of mindset it seeps in, and it's why so much of really what occupies our time, washing dishes, sending an email, trying to show patience to a roommate, changing your child's dirty sheets, seems so flat and small and worthless. In God's economy, though, serving him, no matter how, should be done with a party spirit. It can be done with festivity, God graciously invites us to service, and any service to him is glad. God alone can graciously invite us to serve, but here's what we need to realize. That that's not to say that you either choose to serve the Lord or you don't serve at all. Bob Dylan really was right. You've got to serve somebody. You will end up devoted to something. You may serve money or comfort or individuality. But the distinction is this, outside of God's kingdom, you will always be serving in order to gain entry to the good life. Outside of God's kingdom, you will always be serving in order to gain entry into the party. For example, you, if you devote yourself to climbing the ladder and gaining status in your career, if that's what you're entirely devoted to, you will do that because you believe that the, the full life that you're after is on the other point of that, which means that you will be devoted to something that will only deliver when you succeed, only when you do well enough. So that means that the value of your labor is determined by some expression or form of power. You have to strive, you have to exert, you have to succeed, and nothing can get in the way. And if you fail, say you don't actually climb the ladder, you don't gain more status, then you've not only failed at your career, you've failed at life. Your labor and your life 
meant nothing. But on the other hand, really on the only other hand, God calls you to serve his purpose because he's already extended an invitation to his party as a gift, as a gift. Here's the point. God doesn't make you serve in order to gain entrance into the good life, into the party. Instead, he invites us, he brings us in, and then he gives you a life of service. He gives you a serving life. When you serve him on the greatest scale, you have nothing to lose and nothing to gain because what is best is already yours as an inheritance. And so you can clean forks with a party spirit, with a suit on. You can devote all of yourself to God and to his purpose, seeking to love your neighbor, allow for interruptions to your plans, invite the stranger in, give your money and your resources, bless those who curse you, and do it all with mirth. Because life devoted to God is the good life. How would life devoted to God be the good life? We need only to look at Jesus. The shape of his life was service to the point of death on a cross. And he was at at all times full of God's own spirit. And through his devotion to God culminating in death, he entered into resurrection life, the good life in its fullness forever. Which means that when Jesus invites you to come and follow him, to take up your cross, yes, it's an invitation to death, but it's also an invitation to life. God invites, he invites, he invites us to knowledge, he invites us to service. Let's look last at doxology. God invites us to doxology. So we'll sing the doxology shortly which you'll see in your bulletin. And it goes, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So doxology is this form of praise to God. And the doxology that we sing, it's an invitation to praise God from whom all blessings flow. He's the God and giver of life. He made us, we are his All creatures are to lift their voices in praise to him. That's actually not enough. The doxology shows us that. The heavenly host of angels is called to praise the Lord, who is one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so here's what the doxology that we're going to sing is inviting us to do. It invites us every single week to join our worship to the worship of the angels in praise to the triune God. And that ultimately is what Psalm 100 is urging us to do. You can look in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And in verse 2, come into his presence with singing. Sing to him. Raise your voice to him in adoration. Look there in verse 4. We're called to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Go into his sanctuary, into the place of his heavenly presence, and give thanks to him. Bless his name. So here's what we're being called to do. We're being called to ascribe ultimate value to God, to give our hearts controlling desire to him so that you love him, so that your entire life is geared toward not only knowing him, not only serving him, but enjoying him. We're summoned, invited to doxology, 
Why? Because doxology is really the most fitting response to who God is. It's the most natural response to who God is. So verse 5 gives us the tiniest snapshot of why we worship God. It says, for the Lord is good. He is delightful. He is beauty itself. He's the life of the party. And the snapshot, it continues. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. So he demonstrates his beauty through his steadfast commitment to his promises to love us. His faithfulness to his commitment to show us unearned favor over and over again to bring us in. So doxology is the most fitting, most natural response to entering in to the reality of God's party where it is so much bigger and grander and better because the God at the center is so much more faithful and so much more loving than we could possibly ever digest. As we step in, as we step into it, here's the idea we join in. You step in and you join into the song. There's currently this concert that's going on in this medieval church in Halberstadt, Germany. And it's at this old church that's nearly in ruins and it is entirely played by this organ. And it's written by this American composer named John Cage. And it's, it's piece that's played so incredibly slowly using sandbags to hold down the keys of the organ. And this concert, this piece, it started in this church in 2001 and it's scheduled to continue until the year 2640, which is not a real year. I refuse to believe it. The people who visit the town, they step into this church, especially when every seven years the notes on the organ change. Thrilling. So people step in and they're, they're hearing a song that began long before they arrived. And it's going to continue long after they're gone. We're invited to participate in doxology, not a, not a slow, boring piece, but the most thrilling piece that has been going on since the creation of the world in heaven and on earth. It's performed to perfection by the angels in heaven. And this means that praises to God, they don't start with us. They're not something that we just generate or conjure up or accomplish. They start with God himself who gives his goodness to us and then invites us to join in on worship that began long before us and will continue long after our death into eternity. will continue forever. On the outside looking in, the doxology of our lives and the doxology we're about to sing might just sound like the mewling of flat earthers, people who are living in unreality. It might seem like the empty cry of desperate people crying out to a God who won't hear them and won't give them anything in return. It might sound like the soundtrack to an empty life. But on the inside, within the party, it's the sound of heaven. On the inside, you find yourself joining the worship of angels, giving your heart's controlling desire to the only one who can stand up to the weight of your praise. If you give your, your heart's greatest love and praise to anything else, it will not return any love to you because it is not powerful enough to hold the weight of your praise. But to enter into this doxology, to give your praise to this God, 
is to give your heart's controlling desire to the one who gives himself, receives your praise, and then gives still more as he brings you in and invites you in to a life that is so much more vibrant and larger than you knew it would be. Invites you in so you would become yourself far more than you ever knew you could be. And how do you get in on this? Psalm 100 joyfully tells us, God invites, he invites to simply walk in. That brings us to the table. We're invited to join in the doxology, the great party, because Jesus promises to be with us. He gave himself to bring our praise before the Father by the power of his spirit. He opened the way for us to be in God's presence through his own flesh and blood. And so coming here to the table, it's joining in on the heavenly party through Jesus so that we're not bridging some distance. We're not earning our way in. Instead, we're coming to the one who has already brought us in through his own flesh and blood. So here's the invitation. Step in, join in because he invites you. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.